I've always been somewhat amazed or tongue-in-cheek amazed at the very things that Paul says I don't want you to be ignorant on, that they are the areas we are the most ignorant on. And um, certainly spiritual gifts is high on the list. There still is a lot of fog that remains when it comes to the gift of tongues and spiritual gifts in general. And there are those who say they have a complete handle on them. I'm not one of them. I don't. In many areas, I walk in ignorance. And um, I'm always asking the Lord for more light. And I don't think that there is a simple answer we can give and just say, oh, yeah, it's very, very simple. See here, here and here. When it comes to spiritual gifts, I still do not completely understand them. I've read 50 or so books on the subject. I've given a 30-part study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I still admit ignorance in many, many areas. In Acts chapter 2, we get to that time of Pentecost, and so I've slowed down, and we are really dissecting this area. And to refresh our memory, let's read these verses. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with heteroglossa, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? And others mocking said they are full of new wine. Now, it's kind of interesting that Calvary Chapel gets attacked by two groups that take very different sides to the whole issue of speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts in general. There are those who don't believe them, then there are those that believe that everybody should have all of them and you should be, you know, bubbling all the time. And we get the finger pointed at us from both directions, which I have to admit to you I take as quite an encouragement. As long as I know both of those extremes on the spectrum are complaining about us, I feel real safe and balanced. Were it just one side complaining, I'd really take a second look, a deep look. But the fact that both of them are pointing the finger, 
either saying you're spiritually dead or you're fanatics, depending on which side of the spectrum you're on. I take quite a bit of comfort in that. I go, because the letters and the complaints are kind of even Stephen. No matter where you stand on this issue, there is a fundamental thing you must remember. We all must remember. It's a principle we shared last time. That the pathway of love is always greater than the pathway of power. And this is where I think we break down. We get dogmatic about little areas like this because we think we've studied and we've arrived at the truth. Hence, I'm right. But we must come to the common ground of love. In the end, saying no matter what you believe in, as long as you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you believe He is the Son of God, God in human flesh, who died for your sins, rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again, I love you, you're my brother. For Paul said, though I speak with the tongue of men or of angels and have not love, I am zip, zero, nothing. The pathway of love must always supersede the pathway of power, so in the end we have to defer and put our hand out to the person and say, I love you, let's fellowship together. Whether they say that or not is irrelevant. They may say, no, I can have no fellowship with you because you don't believe like I believe. And there are, as you know, many people like that. They look down on you because you don't believe everything they believe, which is totally ridiculous, and you know it's ridiculous. And you want to shake them and say, it's ridiculous. But instead, defer and say, look, I love you, I still want to fellowship with you. Whether they extend that or not, some are very dogmatic in this. And if you don't believe like they believe on this issue, you are a heretic. And some people love to throw that word around. Every time somebody doesn't agree with them, they're a heretic. Well, listen. I have come to believe in a viewpoint concerning the gift of tongues. And if you don't believe like I believe, you are not a heretic. Maybe inaccurate but you're not a heretic. <laughs> and we can still love one another in this spirit and fellowship in the Lord. Jesus Christ designed His body, the body of Christ, to operate smoothly, to function together. And so, every one of us has to come to a place alone before God where we recognize He's sovereign and we trust Him to give Joe this gift and Mary that gift and Frank this gift and blend us all together. None of us has the right to say, you must have this gift or you are subnormal. Nor do we have the right to say, I must have this gift or I'm subnormal. We have no right to do that. For it says in Corinthians, the Holy Spirit dishes out to each one individually as He wants to. He calls the shots. And we have to again defer to the Lord and trust Him. We cannot choose where or how or in what capacity we are going to serve the Lord. It's not up to us to choose. It's up to us to discover what He has chosen for us and how to use that gift that He has given to us. I mean, if the ministry were up to just 
choose what and where you want to go, I would be pastoring Cancun Christian Fellowship. I'd be off somewhere than doing this. There's a lot of other things, but I really believe and know my gifts and callings, both the gifts of the Spirit and the gift of teaching, administration and others, and also the place the Lord has called me to. So I'm going to be content with that. That's where he's called me, and that's what we all must do. Lord, what do you want me to do? It is hard to walk the middle ground. I've noticed that being in Albuquerque for eight years now, it's tough to walk the middle ground. I kind of anticipated it would happen, and it's kind of, in one hand, fun to watch it happen. Because in the spectrum of belief on spiritual gifts, you got a whole lot of in-between ideas, and you've got two basic sides, two polarizing beliefs. On one hand, in this town and in every town, you have the cessationists, meaning a group of people that believe gifts have ceased. The miraculous gift have ceased. They're no longer in existence today. A large group of them are dispensationalists, which mean it's a group of people that believe that biblical history is divided up into time elements or stewardships and that God revealed himself in different ways at those different times, that God revealed himself through history in different ways at different dispensations, which I really have no qualms with, basically. In many areas, I am a true, diehard dispensationalist. I believe in dispensations, and you have them named different dispensations. The Edenic dispensation, the Garden of Eden. The Antediluvian dispensation before the flood. The patristic dispensation, the great forefathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The legal dispensation, the giving of the law through Moses, all the way through to the ecclesiastical, or the church age, the ecclesiastical dispensation. Then there are those, and this is where I part with them, who divide the church age up also into dispensation. Apostolic, post-apostolic teaching. And during the apostolic era, there were the gifts of the Spirit that flourished like crazy, but they have ceased. They are no longer in existence for today. Thus the word cessationist. They have ceased. Or dispensationalist. We're in a different dispensation, and we're not in the apostolic dispensation, where the gifts flourished We're in the post-apostolic dispensation, the coming together of the body of Christ. Now that we have the Scripture, we no longer need those things. They all pointed to the Scripture. Now, I'm a dispensationalist up to that point. Then again, you have the ultra-dispensationalists who see two different churches in the book of Acts. Did you know that? There was first the Jewish church. Jews who believed in Jesus, church number one, and church number one ended when the second church came into being, that is, Gentiles came, they were saved, and the body of Christ came into being, and church number one was now out of date. A lot of this dispensational teaching came in the late 1800s, early 1900s, by a Princeton professor who was a professor of conservative theology, Princeton University, by the name of B.B. Warfield. 
And he espoused much of this, and much of his teaching is wonderful. Systematic theology, his viewpoint of the scriptures through the dispensation. It's wonderful work he has done. He's contributed to the church in many areas. But he and others have taught this whole idea that there is one baptism. And they quote the little old scripture that says, for there's one God, there's one baptism. We've all been baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. Thus, baptism, quote unquote, of the Holy Spirit means the day you get saved, you trust Jesus, he baptizes you or puts you into the body of Christ, period, close the deal, the doors are shut. There is no subsequent work of the Holy Spirit after that. I disagree with that. I stated my case on a number of occasions. Um, we've had conversations, some of us, about that on a number of occasions. It's um, on the record, and so we won't go over that again. But, question, what authority does anyone have to come along and say, gee, um, the apostolic dispensation came to a close at this point, and now this post-apostolic dispensation, from this time on, there's no such thing as the gifts. By what authority does anyone have to come along and say that? Well, they quote most often a scripture in 1 Corinthians 13 that says this. For we know in part, well, it says love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And the way that is often interpreted by these well-meaning folks is that the gifts of the Spirit were of temporary value as the early church was being put together by the Lord But when that which is perfect is come, we have no longer any need for the gifts of the Spirit, as the text said. That which is perfect, according to their interpretation, being the complete canon or the body of scriptures that you and I have. In other words, now that we have the Bible which points the direction to God, we don't need the supernatural gifts as signs and wonders anymore. However, even one of the greatest dispensational theologians by the name of Charles C. Ryrie. He did the Ryrie Study Bible. In fact, it's a note right in the Study Bible in 1 Corinthians 13. says that that verse doesn't even mean that. And it couldn't mean that linguistically because it is literally when he who is perfect has come. In other words, when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, and sets up his kingdom and we're in his presence, we're not going to need tongues, prophecy. We're going to be face to face with him. It's not the canon of scripture. And there are many, many others. We could quote a lot of scriptures to show that. We've done it already on tape. But just kind of giving you the setting of where we're at. Also, there's an inaccuracy historically. You could look at Acts chapter 2 and say, great, that was neat for Acts chapter 2, but it never happened again. And I would say I agree with you. What happened in Acts chapter 2 was unique. It was temporary. That is, the speaking of tongues in foreign languages. And also the manifestation of fire, the manifestation of the um, the mighty rushing wind going through the house. 
That was unique. That was ushering in the church age. Those signs have never been repeated since. And that shouldn't surprise us any more than the signs that happened at the giving of the law in Mount Sinai. They were never repeated as well. They were inaugural events. However, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, including speaking in tongues, have never ceased. And if you'd read church history, the church fathers post-apostolic, they, by their own admission, said they never ceased. Justin Martyr, 100 to 165 A.D., said, quote, It is possible now to see among us men and women who possess the gifts of the Spirit of God. Then you move on to around 200 A.D., Irenaeus, church scholar, church father, said that he spoke of prophecies, healings, and tongues which were uttered in his day. He said, For some certainly and truly drive out devils, so that those have been cleansed from evil spirits, frequently both believe in Christ and join themselves to the church. Another case, by the way, that a Christian can't be demon-possessed. The early church fathers spoke of only those outside the church being possessed by demons, and then afterwards coming to know the Lord. He goes on, Others steal or still heal the sick by laying their hands on them, and they're made whole. Yea, moreover, as I have said, even the dead have been raised up and remain among us for many years. Post-apostolic. Tertullian, 215 A.D., wrote a seven-volume work on the movement of the Holy Spirit, including the gifts. In later accounts, he defended and encouraged speaking in tongues. I could go on through a list, but simply, John Wesley, Augustine quotes it, church fathers all the way through even to the Reformation. John Wesley, in 1750, said, the grand reason why the miraculous gifts were soon withdrawn was not only that faith and holiness were well nigh lost, but that dry, formal, orthodox men began to ridicule whatever gifts they did not have themselves and to cry them all as evil madness or imposture. He goes on, the causes of their decline was not as has been vulgarly supposed because there is no need for them. But all the world were become Christians. The real cause was the love of many, almost all Christians so-called, has waxed cold. This is the real cause why the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit were no longer to be found in the Christian church because Christians were turned heathen again and only had a dead form left. Boy, he did not mince his words, did he? We've already discussed that the baptism of the Holy Spirit empowers you. It gives you efficiency in testimony and in service to serve the Lord with great oomph. And case in point is Acts chapter 2. Before and after Pentecost, before and after the filling of the Holy Spirit, these disciples were totally radical. A change that you cannot explain except for two factors, the resurrection and the Holy Spirit who would come upon them. Okay. One end of the spectrum, you've got the cessationists. Doesn't happen anymore. The other side of the spectrum, you've got the charismatic movement. While I believe in certain aspects of it, I do not consider myself a charismatic, though I speak in tongues. And people would say, no, wait a minute. You see, 
You've, you've found this out. People love categories. And they like to place you in a category. And if they can't find a category to fit you in, it drives them bananas. They're so frustrated with you. If you simply said, I'm Southern Baptist dispensationalist, they'd say, great, I can hang with you. I know where you think. I know what you're going to do. You're predictable. If you said, I'm Pentecostal holiness. Okay, I understand. I can pigeonhole you. I can, you're predictable. When you try to walk the middle line, it's tough. And you have been, no doubt, um, hammered at, speaking to some of you by, by both sides. The charismatic movement represents Pentecostal church, Assembly of God church, which is classic Pentecostal, uh, also neo-Pentecostal, a recent term that has been coined theologically. Now, my, my degree is in theology, and I still don't understand all this stuff. So if you're thinking, what are all these names? I don't even understand them all. They just kind of are coined as the thing happens. Also, besides the neo-Pentecostals, are the signs and wonder movements, largely espoused by John Wimber and Vineyard Christian Fellowship. Many of these groups mean very well. But there's something that always happens whenever the church rediscovers giftedness or a work of God that has been neglected for a long time, the tendency historically has been to overemphasize that which they have found to the neglect of the rest of the body of truth and to emphasize that as the king of everything else. It happens, I see it in individuals' lives. I've seen people who were diehard, didn't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today. They were baptized in the Spirit because they got open to it one time. And they went out on a limb the other side. Just kind of forcing what had happened to them on everybody else. It happens with individuals. It happens with churches. It happens with movements. And I believe it's happened with the charismatic movement because there is a fundamental weakness within the charismatic movement. And the fundamental weakness is their preoccupation with experiences over the Word of God. That's the fundamental read. There hasn't been enough emphasis of the Scripture. Oh, Bible. You know, uh, the Spirit is, the letter is dead. The Spirit gives life. A misinterpretation of that passage, by the way. Total. Totally out of context. And so there is this emphasis upon certain gifts that have been undiscovered or put out for a long time. Because emphasizing experience over the Word of God and the result is that they become fertile ground for false doctrine. In fact, I would not be out of line to say that perhaps 90% of all the false doctrine in the last 50 years has come out of that sector of the church. Because... Anything goes. You're just open to the Spirit, and if the Spirit leads, who am I to argue with the Spirit, right? And because everybody has different experiences, many people are confused. And see, it's very convenient and dramatic to say, God told me to tell you this. Because if you say, I think you're out to lunch, they're going to say, you're arguing with God. You see, you've made out to be the bad guy already. Because it's very dramatic to say, Thus saith the Lord, God spoke. And while there is much good, much, much, much good, 
that has come out of the charismatic movement. That is a fundamental error that has led people into false doctrine. In fact, I spoke to... They admit it. The doctrine isn't important. I spoke to one pastor who said, you know what? We don't really care about doctrine in our church. I thought, oh, gee, mercy. You don't care about doctrine. Take a concordance and look up that word sometime and see the emphasis Jesus and Paul and Peter place upon it. It's necessary for walking the way God wants you to and discerning the will of God. Don't ever be afraid of that word doctrine. And because many of them have left the authority of the word of God, there is confusion. Now, that places you in a dilemma. Because people love to categorize you, you've got the cessationists, the dispensationalists in town, pointing the finger at you and saying, oh, I heard about you, those wild types. Kind of get weird in the fringe and even raise your hands up a few times. Yeah, I know about that. You're pegged. Then you've got the other saying, oh, yes, we've heard about your church, but it's so dead. You don't have the gifts of the Spirit flowing and operating. Of course, by gifts of the Spirit, they don't mean gift of teaching, gift of helps, gift of administration. They solely mean gift of tongues, gift of prophecy, gift of healing. Their whole view has been narrowed, and they have overemphasized a few gifts to the neglect of the rest. And that's the sad portion. But because of that, you're in a dilemma if you attend here. You're pegged by both sides. You can't win for losing. Now, back to Acts chapter 2. There are different views of what speaking in tongues is all about. And I'm going to give them to you in basic format. Three basic views explaining the gift of tongues. And you can see already the fact that I've said there's three basic. There are many others, varieties of all these. Nobody agrees on them. And that's okay. Because all in all, God sovereignly works anyway. As someone pointed out tonight, in fact, it was Tom, he said, we often get in God's way. I'm sure I'm going to get to heaven and God's going to send me down and say, you know all the times you thought you were right? You are in my way. But I love you and I brought you here by my grace, so none of it matters. I don't know. In looking at Acts 2, view number one is that the tongue speaking in Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 are the same, and that both are ecstatic utterances, and the only difference lies in the interpretation. One required a human interpreter in Corinth, and in Acts chapter 2, a twofold miracle existed. They spoke ecstatically, not in a language, but that some people heard it in a language. The miracle was the interpretation. It came back to them interpreted in their own language. Of course, chapter 2, verse 4 says that they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The miracle is clearly in the speaking, not the hearing. Also, notice it says in verse 12, others were perplexed, saying, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Now, you've got a couple different groups here. The people who are in Jerusalem during the feast, who are from all of these countries mentioned, understood perfectly what was going on. Because it was their dialectus in the Greek, their language, with form and syntax and meaning. They understood what was going on. And they said, they're speaking our language. Then it says, others 
probably referring to the Jews in Jerusalem, either Greek-speaking, Aramaic-speaking, or Hebrew-speaking, who didn't understand those dialects and languages, who said, what's this babble? Yeah, there's a Galileans, but can't understand them because they were locals. View number two is that the gift of tongues in the book of Acts and the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 were different gifts. Similar in some instances, dissimilar in many others. Now, I hold to this view. And the people who hold to this view, basically, and actually many uh dispensationalist theologians hold to this view, although they say, although they see the two types, uh, most scholars will say they have ceased for today. But they see this in Acts chapter 2 as a temporary miraculous ability to speak in a foreign language to get the attention of the outsiders. While in the book of Acts, since there required a human interpreter, And it says, whoever is speaking in an unknown tongue is speaking mysteries in the Spirit. No one understands him. No one understands him, unless there's an interpreter. That there's two different kinds of speaking in tongues. One that is a dialect in the book of Acts. It's past tense. It never happens again. And a second form that is found in the book of 1 Corinthians. C.R. Smith, who is a professor of theology at Grace Theological Seminary in Indiana, has said that the gift of tongues in Corinthians are an expression of devotion resulting from a work of the Holy Spirit within the believer. An expression of devotion. Prayer, worship, praise, and we're going to see that in a minute. Resulting from a work of the Holy Spirit within the believer. Now, there's a third view. And that holds that the tongues in the book of Acts chapter 2 and the tongues in 1 Corinthians were the same gift And both were foreign, known languages. Some will say it was used to preach the gospel. That's the bulk of the interpretation. And a few have deviated saying they were foreign languages being praised to God. And this is what they say concerning that. Quote, Since there is no definition in the Bible to what speaking in tongues is except Acts chapter 2. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and subsequently all scriptures in the Bible referring to speaking in tongues, must be seen in this context and this context only. It sounds plausible. It sounds even a bit logical. But it's not theological because there are fundamental differences. If you assume that the foreign language in Acts chapter 2 is the same and it was a foreign language all the way through, then many parts of Acts or 1 Corinthians 14 make absolutely no sense unless you isogeet the text, force an interpretation. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 14. And as you do, I'm going to read something to you out of a book by Professor George Malone. And it's a whole area on speaking in tongues. And he says... One must candidly ask the following questions of the text in both observation and interpretation. He says, if we assume that tongues in the New Testament are foreign language, it is impossible to make sense of 1 Corinthians 14. So we must ask the following questions of the text in both observation and interpretation. First, 
Why would God, in order to have someone speak to him, bestow a foreign language upon that person? For it says in verse 2, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. No one, doesn't say most, no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Another question. How do you speak in a foreign language to God in the spirit and have it a mystery? Again, verse 2. Question 3. How would speaking in a foreign language edify yourself? Verse 4. It says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, for some of these, I find explanations if I were taking the other side, but for many of them, I do not. Another question. Is the interpretation of a foreign language something you pray about? For it says in verse 13, Therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, my understanding is unfruitful. Finally, how can you pray in a foreign language and your mind not be engaged in the process to think of form and syntax Verse 14, For it's, I just read that. Now, there's a fundamental difference between Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 14. In Acts chapter 2, there was no human interpreter needed. People just said, that's our language. 1 Corinthians 14 required a human interpreter to stand up and give the interpretation, for no one understands him apart from a supernatural gift of the Spirit, which Paul lists, tongues, interpretation of tongues. He doesn't call it a linguistic proficiency or ability. Oh, I've heard that language. Hold on, I took it in college. This is what it means. It's a separate gift of the Spirit, the gift of interpretation. Another fundamental difference is that in Acts chapter 2, it was done to get the attention of the outsiders. In 1 Corinthians 14, it is done solely for self-edification, not the edification of the church unless there's an interpreter. Homer Kent, who is also a professor, in fact, he's the dean of the seminary I just quoted in Indiana, professor of Greek and professor of New Testament, said, quote, Tongues in the New Testament were never a foreign language. And he also says, or for mission work. Paul never used or spoke about tongues being used for this manner, yet he himself possessed the Corinthian type of tongue. Also, since you're in 1 Corinthians, you might want to notice that he says in verse 2, he who speaks in an unknown tongue. And then down in verse 10, he uses a different word. There are... It may be so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Now, he's drawing an analogy to phone is the Greek word, and he makes a distinction between glossolalia, to speak in tongues, and phone, to speak in known languages. He draws a distinction between both of them. Of course, if you turn the page, well, you might not need to. My Bible, I have to turn the page. And look in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 14. It says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues 
are for a sign, not to those who believe, but not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. And the cessationists and the classic dispensations will say, see, this proves the whole point. Just like in Acts chapter 2, it was assigned to the unbelieving Jews who said, what's this? They're speaking in our language. This proves the point. However, you're taking the analogy of 1 Corinthians 14 that he's using completely out of context. For he cites Isaiah chapter 28. And the whole purpose of his analogy is not to draw attention to the language but to show the whole purpose of unintelligibility and judgment. This is what I mean. He's quoting out of Isaiah. And in the context, Isaiah is saying to the children of Israel, you guys have been naughty, naughty boys. You've not disobeyed God. Therefore, with tongues of other people will I speak to this crowd. In other words, when you see the city filled with Assyrians taking you to captivity, not speaking Hebrew, but speaking Assyrian, that is a sign, that unintelligibility is a sign to the unbelievers who did not believe in God, did not follow God, did not believe in the coming judgment of God. It is a sign to you of the displeasure and the judgment of God. That unintelligibility is a sign to the unbelievers. That's his whole point here. Because confusion of language in the Bible is always a sign of God's displeasure and God's judgment. And he's saying to those unbelievers, the fact that they'd say, what on earth is going on? They don't even know the spiritual realm. They haven't entered into the spiritual realm. They don't know what tongues or interpretation. That is a sign to them. Whether they understand the language or not is irrelevant. The whole point is that the unintelligibility becomes a sign to the unbelievers. That's the point. That's the point of the analogy, at least, that he's drawing from the text. Okay, question then. What exactly were these Corinthian tongues? What kind of language or what kind of speech is it? There is a man by the name of William Samarin who wrote a thick book on this subject. It's one of the most comprehensive book on tongues. I'm not going to read it to you. It would take years. And if you want to read it, it probably would take years. It, it's a big book. But there's a little quote, he says, in summing this up. He says, in spite of superficial similarities... Glossolalia, which is found in Acts or in 1 Corinthians 14. In spite of superficial similarities, glossolalia is fundamentally not language. All specimens of glossolalia that is, have ever been studied have produced no features that would even suggest they reflect some kind of communicative system. And he goes on to conclude that glossolalia is some form of extemporaneous pseudo-language. He goes on to explain that tongues in Corinth was precognitive speech. That it was speech that was not filtered through the mind for orderly arrangement. Although when a person would deliver it, it might sound like language. It had no form, no syntax, no specific vocabulary, but was not leading it like in a foreign language. When you speak a language, either your language or a language that you learn, your mind is in control of it and leading. You choose the words. And that's one of the differences. It's precognitive speech. The mind is involved, but not leading. Now, since we have very little time left, and I want to finish this tonight, I really do. Acts chapter 2, verse 11, brings up something very interesting. Cretans and Arabs 
we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They were speaking the wonderful works of God, or as the Phillips translation says, they were speaking of the magnificence of God. It was directed toward God, not toward men, which fits 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. He who speaks, now listen carefully, in an unknown tongue, does not speak to men, but he speaks to God. It's always directed upward at God. I say that because, again, tradition. People have seen this gift modeled and, I believe, abused according to the text. There has come an idea that is not scriptural called a message in tongues. It is not found in the Bible anywhere, that phrase. It's contradictory to 1 Corinthians 14 too. Whoever speaks in an unknown tongue is speaking to God, never to men. Okay? When you speak prophetically, you prophesy, it is then directed toward the church, toward men, not to God. That's why tongues and prophecy are entirely different. Now, have you ever been in a meeting where somebody gives a supposed utterance in tongues, someone then gives a supposed interpretation of the tongue and it's not addressed to God? It goes something like, Oh, my children, I am the Lord and I tell you. That is unscriptural. Because the Bible says that tongue speaking is directed to God. It's a prayer. It's a form of praise or intercession. Worship. And the edification that comes personally is a byproduct of that praise and that worship and that intercession. And when a person gives a supposed interpretation like that, I know right away they haven't studied their Bibles. They've heard other people do it and they think, oh, that's the way it works. I'll role model it. But scriptural interpretation never says, oh, my children. It's something like, oh, Lord, we worship you. We magnify you. Now, we have seen here at the church on some occasions some beautiful examples of glossolalia and the interpretation thereof. An unknown tongue given, and the interpretation given is a beautiful form of praise and worship to the Lord. Now, you say, obvious question, what is the value of speaking in something I don't understand? The value is this, God understands it. And it's very precious unto the Lord. It says, you speak mysteries in the Spirit. A mystery is something that is hidden and later on revealed. And that's why this precognitive speech that nobody understands, I think, what is that? Is precious to God and would be precious to the church were there a gift of interpretation there because you are expressing the inexpressible. Now, language is a pact. Language is a pact that we make whereby certain sounds mean certain things. You and I have made a pact with each other. We haven't shaken hands over, but we were raised in America, we speak English, that's our pact. When I say low, generally that means something that is not high. However, in Hebrew, if you say low, it means no. It's a whole different pact that those people have made using the same kind of words. Language is a pact. My human language 
English or whatever you speak, you might know five languages. I have found that almost every human language, and you know, there's Shakespearean English and certain forms of Greek that have more words, and you think, what a beautiful way to express it. Human language, I believe, can never adequately express or extol the greatness of God at some times in a person's heart. There have been times where I can say, Lord, I thank you, I love you, I appreciate you, but it just doesn't cut it. There's so much more in my heart that I feel needs to be expressed. And it's just, I'm not satisfied until it really is expressed in the Spirit to the Lord. And fortunately, my spirit has a greater capacity. We could make up a code. We could devise our own secret code. I could say that um, when you and I are around and nobody's looking, Let's come up with this pact so that we can say these words in public and no one will understand but essence. And so I'll say, after church sometimes, I might come up to you and say, Huzza wuzza jazza wazza. Now when you hear that, that means, let's go to haagen afterwards for ice cream. Now nobody will know that it means that, but we'll make that pact. You go, fine. And you might respond and say, then I will say to you, once you utter that, surface murphus calorex flex. And that means when you hear it, fine, meet you at haagen but you're buying. I say, okay, fair enough. So after service, people are talking together, and I nudge you and I say, huzza wuzza, jazza wazza. They go, what? You go, surface murphus calorex flex. And the people are going, what on earth is that? Well, it's a pact that we have made. Tongues is a pact that you make with God whereby you trust the Holy Spirit to make intercession, to make interpretation according to the will of God. That's what it is. Now, this is where the problem comes in. Because in my known language, I control it. My intellect is in charge. I choose the words. I decide. My intellect is in total control. When I speak in the Spirit, I bypass my intellect. It says in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 14, my understanding is unfruitful. And that's an insult to my intellect. Anytime I can understand what's coming out of my mouth, my intellect is very insulted because it wants total control. And some people worship their intellects more than the Holy Spirit. Thus they won't involve themselves in being open to this gift. Because they want the control. But my understanding is unfruitful. However, in the Spirit, he says in verse 2, you are speaking mysteries. And of course, it says you edify and so on and so forth. Also, it says, and we won't go through all the verses, in 1 Corinthians 14, there are restrictions on the gift of tongues. The Corinthian type of tongues. That only, if you're in a crowd, only if there is an interpretation Will the church be edified? Thus, there, the public tongue speaking of an entire group is prohibited according to 1 Corinthians 14. For a whole group to stand up and da, 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 is out of order. For it says, in the public assembly, two, at the most three, are to speak in a tongue, one at a time, followed by an interpretation each time, and after the third one, you cut it off. You say, why? Why not four? Why not five? I don't know. I didn't write the book. He just said two at the most three. Probably the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say that, to put a lid on those type of gifts to give balance to the rest of the gifts so that we wouldn't get caught in overemphasizing them in our meetings. Same with prophecy. 
Two at the most, three. Cut it off. When it comes to the public gathering together, if God is going to speak a word through prophecy, word of knowledge or whatever, when it comes to tongues, two at the most, three. How do you receive the gift of tongues? You receive it not by taking classes on how to do it, not by repeating phrases unintelligibly over and over and over again, not by grunting and hoping it means something. It has to be a gift of the Holy Spirit, not something that you manufacture. And many people have this gift, but I believe a lot of it's fake. I've seen a lot of fake speaking in tongues. And I've seen a lot of fake interpretation. And they don't take their cues from the Spirit nor from the Scripture, just to how they feel at the time. But there is a true gift. How do you receive it? Well, first of all, you've got to be open to it. If you believe they've ceased, I don't think you're going to be getting it. And so I think that if you have come to an awareness that, you know, gee, maybe this is something valid and maybe God wants something for my life, I think the thing to do is to come to God and repent of any theology that has diminished this gift or any other gift of the Spirit in your life and say, Lord, I'm sorry for quenching the Spirit. I have taken predispositions toward this and suppositions and I repent of that. I'm open. I want to receive this if it's from you. Show me how. And then, of course, it's always up to the Lord. See which gift, at what time, God wants to give it to you. So, summing up where we started a couple weeks ago, and this being part two tonight, summing up the whole meaning of speaking in tongues in the book of Acts is twofold. Number one, it fulfilled a promise that Jesus made. You wait in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and infuse you with power. Number two, it spoke of the plan of God in the future. It was a sign of the Lord's purpose to proclaim the gospel through all of the people groups and known languages of the world. That was his plan. And that was a sign to the church. It was inaugurated on Pentecost. There was a sign of the languages given in Jerusalem that arrested the attention. And within a few months and a few years, missionaries from Jerusalem would be going to those very countries where the people had come, preaching the gospel. And so it was speaking of God's mission heart for the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the good gifts that you give to your children, that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. You don't take them back. Lord, I pray that we would not seek to manufacture nor choose our place, but simply seek to discover. In Jesus' name, amen.